right, good morning, everybody. It's really great to be here with you. Um, I'm really glad to be here with Pastor Erina, Pastor Michael. Erina's parents are here. It's very great. My mother is here. Hello. Um, and just, it's so sweet. I rarely go to church in person because I'm so dead inside. Um, so it's so great to be here with you all and just in such a tender space. I love hearing Mike. I have been listening to Michael sing for 20 years, and I love it. And I loved it this morning. But honestly, you were, like, surpassed because in the middle of you leading worship, a kid did the splits. And it was awesome. I literally was like, this might be the most awesome moment I have seen in worship in my adult life. I was like, we need more of this. So I really, really love that moment. That was maybe my sacred moment of, 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 of just prayer today. Um, we are going to be talking about our ancestors, and part of how we'll do that is um, I'll be talking about what it has meant for me to sort of reclaim the practice of having an altar, but I would love if any of you brought anything to be a part of our communal altar, I would love for you to just bring it up right now, because I would love for it to be a part of this time. So don't be shy, don't hesitate. If you brought something, would you please bring it up here and find a place for it? We'll move things around. Um, oh, I love it. I don't know if the folks on Zoom can see what's on the altar, but if we can... It's so beautiful seeing folks bring things. Thank you, everyone who brought photos and precious items. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, you can bring that. Oh, I love it. So beautiful. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> so beautiful from the jump. Also, those of you who are on Zoom, if you want to be contributing as well, feel free to drop into the chat the object that you brought or to hold it up and let us see. Um, but I love this. Oh, I am emotional. I was emotional last night prepping. There's going to be crying. So be prepared. All right, I'm gonna switch. It's all right, thank you so much. Well, I'm gonna be talking today um, and I had a little title because I, uh, when I worked at The Way for a few years, um, Pastor Michael was always like, but what is the title? And I was like, oh, I'm terrible at titles. And he was like, in the black church, we have titles to our sermons and they have to be catchy and really good. And I was like, I am not from the black church tradition, but I'm gonna try. So I did um, at least my journal, this is not a uh, black church title um, because it's terrible and long and like a journal. But, um, <laughs> but what I will be talking about today is my journey to explore, expand, and reclaim the cloud of witnesses around me. <laughs> so that's what, if, I mean, man, I did years there and I was always like, I will never, I'm never gonna win at this. Um, we're coming out of Hebrews uh, and um, 
I really appreciated the scripture getting read and it talks about being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And I just wanna share what that journey has looked like for me. And clearly I'm going to be sharing from my experience as a Korean American and my trust that you all will reflect and think about what that looks like in your particular context. Um, but for me, if you've heard this passage before, you know, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, um, there's actually a song that I did sing in InterVarsity um, in 1993 um, that puts that scripture to music. Um, and I've been singing it all week, and it's a terrible song. Um, but do you remember it? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, I'm going to stop. Um, and that's why when Hillsong came along, people were like, this is cool, because that's what we were singing. And then we were like, oh, but it's also not good. All right, so. So if you've heard this passage spoken on before, you know, it's not uncommon to talk about the amazing people of faith who've gone before. There's a big list of like, particularly folks that we learn about in the Old Testament, um, murderers, prostitutes, people who almost kill their children, um, you know, who are like, uh, who also are held up as models of faith. And what I really appreciate about that, my main takeaway is like creator will work with whatever he's got. Um, so it's cool if you feel like you are on the struggle bus, like, you're okay. But I wanted to talk about how I have been expanding my sense of who is in the cloud. Because I spent many years feeling like, yeah, the cloud can only be like Jewish people I read about in the Old Testament, who I appreciate, or white guy missionaries who died in China, <laughs> um, or like Jim Elliott or Hudson Taylor. But I have been expanding the cloud, and I would love to share some of that journey with you. So, Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the first way that I have expanded this cloud is um, to be able to bring folks who have formed my social justice ethic, heroes, people who have courageously spoken up in the face of grave injustice. And for me, the first person, <clears throat> the first person who was a hero to me was Malcolm X. And that's why I put on the altar the copy of Malcolm X's autobiography that I read in the fall of 1992 in preparation for the Denzel Washington movie release that was happening uh, that I took the black student group to in high school. Um, but <clears throat> Malcolm X for me was the first person who I saw unapologetically name the harm and violence of whiteness. Um, there was not like a ton of that growing up in Seattle in the 80s. Um, and so when I read his book, it was, it was such a first time encounter and the courage and the unapologetic way he spoke about the violence of white supremacy, it changed me. I didn't have all the words for it at that time, but he introduced me to a way of being in the world. And as I have reclaimed and explored and expanded, I realized that his truth speaking and his aching and painful commitment to continued growth and learning is someone whose strength I call on all the time when I'm faced with injustice when the world needs us to speak with unflinching clarity and speak truth to power, I think about Malcolm X. I also did not know until more recently that Malcolm X traveled to Palestine on a number of occasions. And on his last trip there, he visited Gaza and met with the Palestinian poet um, Harun Hashim Rashid. Here he is meeting with the chief judge and scholar of Gaza at that time. Both of these men were assassinated, I believe the next year after this photo was taken. But 
his encounters and learning in Gaza led him to write a letter to the Egyptian Gazette entitled On Zionist Logic, in which he declares his staunch support for the Palestinian struggle and urges African leaders to support the Palestinian quest for freedom. Um, and his advocacy linked black internationalism with the Palestinian cause and created a legacy of solidarity between black liberation and Palestinian liberation starting in the 60s. And so he's been a hero for a long time, but he became a hero in a new way in this season. And for me, that expanded the cloud because my cloud used to be like really evangelical and only Christians could be in the cloud. Um, but I'm hoping that I can add Malcolm to the cloud for his courage and his um, clarity of vision. Amen? Another person that I added to the cloud um, is Kazu Ijima. Does anyone, do y'all know who Kazu Ijima is? I only knew who Kazu was like three years ago. So um, I also brought the book that introduced me to Kazu Ijima. Kazu Ijima is one of the mothers of the Asian American movement on the East Coast. Um, she and another middle-aged mother of college students, Nisei, Japanese American women, were hanging out, they would like hang out all the time, they were friends, they would sit on the bench and, and they uh, talking with one another and they were like, we want to do something to confront the injustice that we're seeing. They, seeing. they were very compelled and motivated, inspired by the, the civil rights movement and by the work of black liberation. And so they were like, you know what, let's start organizing. And they literally, you know, this is before the internet, so they um, started reaching out to their friends and let me read a quote from her. So this is from an interview that she did so Glenn Omatsu, who's interviewing, he said, you're one of the few Nisei who continued active political work from the 30s through the 80s. Why did some Nisei continue with political activism and others not? She answers, the only answer I can give is a personal one. Min Matsuda and I were always very close. We worked in the same place, we ate lunch together, we always maintained a close relationship, and we always talked politics. We were inspired by the black movement. That's why we decided to start the first Asian group in New York City, Asian Americans for Action, often known as AAA, in 1969. We contacted old political Nisei friends. We got no response. We were furious. For me to be like, what? There were angry Asian American ladies in New York in 1969 organizing and getting mad? Why did I not know this until like 2021? But I have added her, her work is so amazing. They like literally would just go to all these protests, um, other, org the other protests that were happening and go up to every Asian American that they saw and just be like, like do you want to come to this gathering that we're going to have? Um, and, and originally they were like, let's do something that's more cultural for Japanese Americans. And uh, uh, Kazu's son was like, no, you have to do something that includes all Asian Americans. And listening to her son, they did a pan-Asian gathering. And that was the start. They only heard about the organizing that was happening on the West Coast, which many of us have heard about, after they started their work on the East Coast. Did you know about the mad Nisei Asian American organizers in New York in the 60s? I add Kazu to the cloud of witnesses around me. Learning history has been the key, a key to my healing, a, he, a, a key to being able to imagine collective liberation. We don't know our history because they do not want us to know it, <laughs> and nobody will teach it to us. But it is out there, and it has changed me to know that I can add Kazu Ijima to the cloud of witnesses around me. 
So that's one way I've expanded the cloud. A second way has come in the context of, um, oh yeah, will you go to the next one? That's Kazu in her old age, still out in those streets. I constantly show pictures of older Asian American women because older women exist, okay? And so I just <laughs> need to show photographic evidence um, that we're still out here in these streets. So I was talking about Kazu with this cohort that I lead. I lead a cohort of Asian American women we're journeying together over the course of a year. And as we talked about Kazu, um, and folks were like so inspired and like, yes, let's claim this like woman as one of our um, heroes and ancestors. Um, but we started talking about like, you know, a lot of us don't have like activists in our own kind of personal histories. And we were like, do we feel sad about that? How do we, what do, how do we navigate that? And we're like, well, you know, like a lot of our moms and our grandmothers and our aunties couldn't be activists because they were just trying to survive, right? Many of them were fleeing in the midst of the Cultural Revolution or coming up on the back end of the Korean War or surviving after the internment camps. Um, and obviously I'm speaking from the experiences that are coming from within the Asian American cohort. Um, and we were like, oh, you know, especially now where like being an activist and resisting in a particular kind of way um, is respected and understood in certain circles. We we're like, oh, I, we feel sad that we don't have that. But then what we started talking about was, but what our mothers and aunties and grandmothers and great grandmothers went through needs to be honored. It needs to be named, but we just don't have like a word for it. We know that they suffered a lot. We know that they went through like such difficult times, but because we don't have a name for it, we've sort of just been told like, is that not so, I don't know, that's sort of like the plight of Asian women to like suffer and remain nameless and disappear into history. And so in the cohort, one of the things we did was we said, let's name these women so we can better honor them in the cloud of witnesses. And so we call them our survival liberationists meaning that through their survival, they, they made a way. Like they themselves, like what they had capacity for was to simply live, right? Or to navigate like incredible violence or colonialism or militarism. But that has to be named and honored because if they had not survived, the next generation, my generation, wouldn't have the opportunity to taste the freedom and liberation that I am able to move in right now. Like, could my grandmother, like, in rural Korea under Japanese occupation before the Korean War, imagine her granddaughter out in these California streets, like, preaching the Bible, not having children because she doesn't feel like it, you know? No but her survival made a way for me to move in a kind of freedom and life that she could probably not even imagine. And so that language has been so helpful to say all of the ancestors who came before, their survival is part of the cloud of witnesses around me. Does that make sense to expand that and to honor that? So take a moment. I even just want you to think in your own family, your own past, your own history, Particularly, I think women and their stories remain so nameless and invisibilized to claim them. And sometimes we get really trapped in a Western framework that it's like, oh, if I don't know my ancestors' exact name, full name, where they were born, where they died, I can't claim them. I'm not connected to them. That's Western thinking. You are connected to your ancestors, and your ancestors are connected to you because it simply is. It's, it, it simply is. 
So you don't have to know, if you get to know more of their stories, that is a gift. But part of what happens in migration and disruption and through imperialism is we get cut off from some of those stories, but it doesn't break that connection. Your ancestors remember you and you can remember them, whether or not you know their name specifically. So take a moment to receive that and breathe that. And then, <clears throat> The last way I've been thinking about expanding the cloud of witnesses has been the most sacred and personal and kind of interior. And that has been kind of reclaiming this practice of building an altar to actually consider that um, my grandmother, uh, that my grandfather, that my grand great-grandparents who I never knew are a part of the cloud of witnesses that surrounds me. Now. Um, some of that was getting over, I don't know all of their names and stories. Some of that is that we like know that not all of our ancestors were like A plus people. <laughs> A lot of us being like, they're in hella dysfunction in these streets. Okay, <laughs> being like patriarchy, it was real. Confucianism is a bastard. Um, so uh, one of the most helpful things I ever heard, and I'm not gonna dive into this, but it always needs to be talked about because we were like, oh, well, when people pass like a very, like a, Particular the kind of formation I came up in was like when people die like they're just asleep like there's nothing going on So don't even try to talk to them or they're being tortured in hell Neither option is my favorite um, I don't really believe in the tortured in hell option anymore And the most helpful thing I ever heard was from Lenore three stars who is one of the badass indigenous grandmothers and um, the badass indigenous grandmas gather us in cohorts and they share their stories and one of the things they said was I believe when our ancestors go they go to a place of healing Because what I know of creator that is who creator is And I was like, oh, yeah Everything I know about Jesus if Jesus is revealing creator to us is that Jesus is a healer and so rarely I, I think Jesus did not demonstrate very much torture in his time here. He received it from Empire that is what we're preparing for in Easter. But he did not perpetuate violence and torture, but he healed everywhere he went. And so I feel like what Lenore offered has been a really sacred gift to me, to believe that even people who brought great brokenness and dysfunction into our families, when they go to the other side, continue to a place of healing. And I realize that's really different than continue to a place of like, creator messing with them for a long time. But I definitely don't believe in that option and somehow this one makes more sense to me. So I think that that can help us as I think about like, what do we do about ancestors that we know that caused a lot of family harm? Is that I can be praying for them to be in a place of healing and transformation and that I don't need to, and also I'm not claiming those jacked up dynamics. But the other thing that has made it hard to, um, to reclaim practices is something that Cindy Lee named for me. And I'm constantly talking about the cohorts and people in, who influence me because all my theological formation is collective and communal. So Cindy Lee, she wrote Our Own Forming. She's also the director of Liberated Together Spiritual Direction School. And she came in and did a session at our last in-person retreat. And she goes, a lot of what us as Asian American women are dealing with is the internalized Western missionary gaze. And I was like, what? Internalized 
Western missionary gaze, meaning that for many of us, Western missionaries came into our countries, they smelled certain things, they saw certain things, they looked at different practices, and they were like, that smell, I do not like it. That practice, I think that's idol worship. That cultural expression, that's definitely demonic. And we internalized it. And what that internalized Western missionary gaze did was it made us suspicious of aspects of our own culture. It made us suspicious of certain smells. That's why it's actually been important for me to find incense and smells that come from my own culture. I first started thinking about this more as I did my master's program with the Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. And I saw a lot of native folks, you know, they would sage things. But then they would be like, dude, if you're not native, stop saging stuff. All you non-natives stealing stage or like one decimating the supply. But I was like, but what are, what are the smells of my own people? And I realized like, oh, I had sort of been taught to mistrust the smells that come from my own culture. Been reclaiming that. Um, it has also made me feel suspicious because um, being connected to our ancestors, we were told that was idol worship and worshiping other gods. And many of us who were formed in Christianity were told directly or indirectly that the further we were from our culture, the more Christian we were. And that you could hold on to cultural practices as long as they had no spiritual meaning. Do you know what I'm saying? You can wear a traditional outfit, but you have, to dis you have to disavow everything of its spiritual significance. And part of what I have been doing is trying to reclaim that. So I'm going to offer two reflections. I feel like I'm almost, I should be done by now. Is, is it almost my time? Okay. I've lost track of time and space. I'm going to offer two reflections around getting out of the, um, outside of the internal Western, internalized Western missionary gaze. I'm going to offer some feelings of anger. Because sometimes anger is a gift, and anger catalyzes our grief. And then I'm going to offer tenderness to close us. Is that cool? So I sat down to really think about this sermon like two nights ago, and I was filled with rage. I just got mad. And I don't, um, as an Enneagram 8, if you're familiar with that, 8s are kind of known for moving in against energy, but I actually work really hard to manage that because I don't always feel like against energy is the most enlivening or where I want to do my work from. But I felt like, no, I want to share some of the anger I had. And the anger I had kind of came out as a, almost like a poem. So I'm just going to read that to y'all. Is that okay? It's weird to read a poem after Langston gets read, but on we go in these streets with courage. So... Who will name what is good and bad? Who will tell me who I am? Western missionaries came to my land, smelled the smells, saw the places of worship, saw the respect to the elders, saw the offerings of love, and despised them. And they told us that our ways, our wisdom, our ways of knowing were evil and demonic. Their wars were not demonic. Their rape was not sacrilegious. Their genocide was not evil. Their militarism was not syncretistic. Building the greatest military industrial complex with enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world hundreds of times was not idol worship, but remembering my grandmother is. Their capitalism threatens the earth and all people as disposable, but that is not unclean. The table of food I set out to my ancestors is unclean. A table to those who survive the horrors of their creation, it strengthens me. 
They remember me and I remember them. And to build connection to them is to know that I am not alone. I am never alone. I am surrounded by a cloud, swear word, swear word, of witnesses. The earth is my greatest ancestor, giver of wisdom. She has survived. I put my feet on the ground and she calls me her own. Survival liberation is still unnamed but remembered by me and now by us. I will not hear nor tolerate or hold in my body the faintest belief that the colonizer can name me or my culture or tell me what is good or evil. Telling me that places of worship filled with incense and gold are tacky and ungodly, but carving their ancestors into the sacred Black Hills. Lincoln, Roosevelt, Jefferson, Washington carved onto mountains, printed on money, worshiped at the expense of human life. The Black Hills are the relative of the Lakota Sioux, and the settlers carved the faces of their ancestors onto that sacred site. What could those people ever tell me about what is good and evil? What is sacred? How would they know? I will not hear it, nor tolerate it, or hold in my body the faintest belief that anyone outside of who I am can name me, or my people, or our culture. I cast it out of my body, because the only demon I have ever known is the voice of the colonizer in my ear. And now for tenderness. Because where I want to live, ultimately, is in a place of tenderness. And building an altar has been a gift to myself, a small act of resistance and exploration. And I just want to share, when I first started building an altar, it felt really weird and like, what am I doing? Um, but I sat with this photo of my grandmother, and I begin to think about her, who lived in this sort of transitional place, and how much I couldn't see and comprehend who she was and give her the respect that she deserved in her life. As I added incense and other components, I felt like there was a way that prayer came back to me. Because one of the most sort of triggering things for me in the decolonizing journey has been prayer. Korean people, they love to pray. My aunt is a 5 a.m. prayer mountain, pray every day kind of lady, and I, pre I receive those prayers. But I can't pray that way, and I find that kind of prayer very, chokes me up. But my altar has become a place where I can hold people before creator again. And that has been a tender and sacred thing. As I have continued to build out an altar, I love this beautiful image of all of the ancestors that you brought and the cultural practices and the way that we're reclaiming that. I feel like I have more courage and clarity that allows me maybe not to run the race that is set before me, not even slow jog it, but maybe like gently walk and set aside the things that would hinder me and to move in the truth that I am in creator's image, that my ancestors are in the image of creator and that the cloud of witnesses is so much bigger and broader and deeper and more beautiful than I had ever given myself permission to know. And I hope that you also are able to explore and know the cloud of witnesses that surrounds you. We are surrounded. You are surrounded. Amen.